Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, formerly the BFI podcast, but still brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. The Bigger Picture, for those of you joining us for the first time, hello, is a film podcast in which we put a film that's coming out in UK cinemas in context, finding out where it came from, why it came about, and what it all means. This episode, seeing as it's Valentine's Day, we're going to talk about Notting Hill, which is 20 years old this year. Yikes. And it's placed in the pantheon of British rom-coms. I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. Anyway, before we head off to Notting Hill, what have you discovered since we last spoke? Well, there's been a number of things because it's been weeks. The last time we recorded this has was before Christmas. Ages ago. So I'm going to talk about You, which is a TV show on Netflix available now, which is stars Penn Badgley formerly of Gossip Girl fame, as a sort of bookstore clerk that becomes obsessed with this aspiring writer called Guinevere Beck, or just Beck. And he starts following her around and inserts himself into her life. And shit goes down very, very badly. And he sort of starts eliminating people that he thinks get her down or bring her down to a lower level. And he tries to essentially build her up into what he thinks she should be. I believe in love at first sight, but love is tricky. Is this Joseph? Hey, can we get real for a second? You have questionable taste in friends. I'm going to help you get the life you deserve. I think I might really like him. You can't be serious. I'm not a maybe. I'm the one. I sort of judged it at the beginning and I thought it was just going to be a trashy, another kind of stocky man obsessed with a woman type series. However, very quickly became very interesting and it's actually incredibly smart in the way that it completely flips the stalking narrative. And from the very beginning, we see that the protagonist, Joe, is incredibly disturbed. But also Beck is so wonderfully mediocre and unlikable herself. So you don't even really get why he's obsessed with her. She's not great, but that makes her real. But he doesn't see her as a real person. He sees her as this makeshift perfect girl in his head and kind of doesn't really engage with the reality and tries to transform her reality to suit his fantasy of her a lot better. There are scary people in the world, Beck. I'm on to you. Jealousy got the best of me. How exactly does one get rid of a body? The things you do for love. Are you watching me? Maybe. Uh Uh-uh. Stalker. It's wonderful and and the viewing experience is actually quite disturbing as well because you go into it thinking it's going to be one thing and kind of prejudging it as a kind of piece of trash and then it becomes really weird but god damn it it's great content and the only other thing that i watched is actually controversially a youtube video oh my gosh yes i showed this to you henry and you did not have the same reaction because just obviously befuddled by it to be honest but I mean, explain it to us you don't like anything that's new <laughs> or funny <laughs> It's a video by a YouTuber called John Tron on his channel, John Tron Show. And it actually came out uh, more than a year ago, but somehow I completely missed it. Flex tape is super strong. 
mixtape ain't super strong. Phil, you're super strong. It is basically a 10-minute video of this guy reacting to an infomercial about a brand of a tape that can fix anything. To show you the incredible sealing power of Flex Seal Liquid. Here it comes, here it comes. We made this entire airboat and covered it in Flex Seal Liquid. <laughs> Another boat? Are you serious? Including, if you cut a boat in half, but then cover it up with flex tape, you can still ride the boat. After a day on the water... And he's riding it again. Phil, I, you did not just roll some flex seal on that and go out in fucking gator-infested waters. I know you didn't. A disclaimer, multiple coats used. We didn't just, you know, slap some of that shit on and send it out. It will perk up any bad day that you're having. And this episode of The Bigger Picture was brought to you by Flex Tape. Um, <laughs> thanks, Anna. I couldn't get the flex tape thing at all. I watched it. It was that kind of high pressure thing where I thought Anna wants me to like this. So I should like it, which made it completely unfunny to me. I'm sure it is funny. Does it mean that you don't like anything that is ever recommended to you by someone no, else? Or is it just by me? Because somebody else recommended the next thing I talk about, which is sex education, which I think we can agree on. And this is the Netflix TV show about a teenage boy living in the depths of Wales whose mum's a sex therapist and starts to borrow some of her skills to offer sex advice to people at his high school. Let's just also say that his mum is played by Gillian Anderson, who is a real-life goddess. And the boy is played by Asa Butterfield. Yes. And they're both brilliant in it. But the thing that it does so well, I think, is it does this weird kind of meld of British comedy with American high school drama. So you get this weird kind of nod to lots of different tropes from American high school comedies, but thrown into the Welsh countryside with a very British sense of propriety that we're all so well known for. I've noticed you're pretending to masturbate, and I was wondering if you wanted to talk about it. I wish my mum was a sex guru. So, why don't you start by telling me your earliest memory of your scrotum? Trust me, you don't. No, I love you so bad. This is a new frontier, my sexually repressed friend. Our chance to finally move up the social food chain. I'm worried about you, man. Everybody's either thinking about shagging, about to shag, or actually shagging. I really loved it. I thought it was great. It's got a lovely atmosphere to it. And it reminds me of the best of 90s slash noughties teen uh, Brit stuff, like As If, where kind of you're really, really rooting for these characters to get ahead and to fall in love with each other and make it work, even though inevitably it's not going to happen. I wish that there was a, a teen show like Sex Education when I was a teenager. It's absolutely brilliant in every single level. Very sex positive too. Absolutely. The students at this school need your help and we need their money. I'll deal with the business end of things. And you could do therapy. Therapy? Yeah, sex therapy. Like your mum. Wow, sex therapist. This could be awesome. Wait, it could be popular. I might have a mild to moderate crush on me. I'm addicted to wanking. My pubes are out of control. I wish I could be a normal kid with a normal dad with a normal dick. Off we trot to Notting Hill, written by Richard Curtis and starring Hugh Grant, Notting Hill reunited the pair after their smash hit rom-com Four Weddings and a Funeral had set the template for the modern British rom-com some five years earlier. Essentially, Notting Hill weaponises the Four Weddings formula. A bumbling but adorable Brit, played by Grant, bumbles his way adorably into the affections of a gorgeous American sophisticate. Around them, his mates self-deprecate themselves into a very British tizzy. It's all very charming and very sweet. These films give an illusion of a much sunnier time. <sighs> Anyway, (laughs) 
Notting Hill starts with the meet cute. Grant's character William is at work in the travel bookshop he owns when the biggest star in the world wanders in for a browse. She's Anna Scott, played by magic casting here, Julia Roberts. At the time, the highest paid female actor in the world. Here's a clip. Sorry about that. No, it's fine. I was going to steal one, but now I've changed my mind. <laughs> oh, signed by the author, I see. Um, yeah, couldn't stop him. If, uh, if you can find an unsigned one, it's worth an absolute fortune. Excuse me. Yes. Can I have your autograph? Uh, sure. Uh, yes. Yeah. What's your name? Rufus. What does it say? That's my signature, and above it it says, Dear Rufus, you belong in jail. Good one. Do my phone number. Tempting, but no. And a well-beaten celebrity meets ordinary lovely person. My first note when I was watching this film was, this could happen to Anna. I actually don't know what you mean by that. You spend all your time I, I around take it celebrity. As an <laughs> You're charming. You've got floppy hair. It could happen to you. <laughs> you, you're saying that I'm Hugh Grant in this situation? Pretty much, yeah. Also, I did flipped. work in a bookshop for years. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. Who's the wait. most famous person that you've met that you had a little uh, frisson with? What does that mean? Uh, sexual attraction. I'm not going to say that. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to engage with that. For a moment there, this podcast threatened to get interesting. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How does Notting Hill stand up 20 years on? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it is so... It kind of weaponizes Britishness mm -hmm. as someone who is not British but grew up watching all of these rom-coms. But having lived there for here for a while, it is such a version of Britishness that is designed for international audiences in a way. It sort of taps into all of the elements that we associate with British men, with London, and mixes that all kind of with the romantic comedy formula, basically, which is, you know, the meet-cute, the courtship, the inevitable fallout slash breakup of the protagonist and the dramatic getting back together. So all of this is kind of wrapped up in lovely, floppy-haired male awkwardness, in kind of very quaint, beautiful, read very posh, very white environments. And I just uh, do what I want. Um, right. Uh, what's the day, is it? Um. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Nothing. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. You said whoopsie-daisies. No one says whoopsie-daisies, do they? I mean, unless... There right. is no unless, because no one has said whoopsie-daisies for, what, 50 years? And even then it was, um, it was just little girls with blonde ringlets. Exactly. Right. So here we go again. Whoa! Whoa! Oh. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a disease. It's a clinical thing. I'm uh, taking pills and having injections. I'm told it won't last long. So. But the interesting thing about this is that it does it actually reflect or create a British brand of rom-coms, do you think? Because it does seem so, even though it follows out from the massive success of Four Weddings and a Funeral, it does feel a little bit 
designed or overly designed to appeal and fit into a very American formula, down to the fact that they bring in Julia Roberts and she is kind of playing an extension of herself, you know, being one of the biggest stars in the world at that time, not even trying to play a British character. She's an American, so it is very much kind of a meeting of the worlds. And you can almost see that it's, you know, the the very British male lead, Hugh Grant, and the very, very American um, leading lady, America Sweetheart hard meeting together and colliding in what is basically the perfect romantic comedy that is designed to appeal to the entire world because it covers both everything that you expect from American uh, romantic comedies and everything you would you were already kind of designed to expect from British rom-coms. Yeah I agree and I was thinking along those lines about where the British rom-com of this style comes from and the film that really stood out to me was something like Powell and Pressburg as a matter of life and death, because there you have the kind of British soldier who crash lands uh, onto British soil again. And then there's the American expat who's there, the female character as his love interest. And is there is something about that kind of transatlantic melding that makes for these films to work. But then other than that, I was trying to think of any other kind of British romantic comedies between that one and the formula that Curtis set up with Four Weddings and a Funeral. And there, there really aren't that many high-profile examples. And it's so weird that Richard Curtis essentially wrote the format for the British rom-com and that everybody else has kind of done a kind of a, a weaker version of it, I think. So do you think there is particular periods for the, when the British rom-com peaked? Definitely. And I, I've used peaked very, very hesitantly because I must stress a lot of these films aren't actually that good. But there's definitely a Debatable. cluster of time periods. Well, here we go. <laughs> First one, I would say, is your 97 to 99, so late 90s. And that is when films like Sliding Doors came out, A Life Left Ordinary Shooting Fish and This Year's Love. Again, the quality of those varies. Carefully. He cut in on me. You're the worst kidnapper I've ever met. Well, I'm trying to do my best here under really difficult circumstances. <laughs> Have you even asked for a ransom yet? Like your daughter here, and I'm going to send her back in pieces unless... Oh, I'm sorry, madam. No, I must have dealt the wrong number. Things like Lifeless Ordinary are really interesting because in those kind of films, they're trying to make the British people seem cool as well as seeing, seeming bumbling and adorable. So Ewan McGregor's character in that is romancing Cameron Diaz. He's kind of painted as this late 90s poster boy in his kind of floral shirt and they have a cool soundtrack with Ash on the soundtrack. But at the same, and it's a Danny Boyle film, so it has the kind of hyper-stylized stuff. But at the same time, he's supposed to be vaguely hopeless and trying to attain this very unattainable American woman. The mixture of that doesn't really work because he doesn't have Hugh Grant's charm and Hugh Grant's charm is all built around the idea that his, flop his floppiness and his hopelessness are what make him sexy there's nothing in addition to that so he's not trying to be cool at the same time and that's the best decision that Hugh Grant ever made when playing those roles is just relying on his natural burbliness and his umming to be the thing that's attractive about him and it is that kind of first period is defined by trying to make British rom-coms cool at so the same time. So in a way time. that period that you're talking about, even though it stemmed from Richard Curtis's kind of huge success with Four Weddings and Funeral, which was also kind of the film that established the Hugh Grant romantic lead persona. And then obviously Notting Hill 
But then all of these films are sort of trying to react in opposition to that. So instead of embracing the highly stylized Britishness, I'm making this up. Um, <laughs> the highly stylized Britishness that um, is exemplified by Hugh Grant's persona on screen, which is something that he has even mocked and addressed in interviews in a, in a really, again, very self-deprecating, really funny way where he makes fun of this floppy persona that he created and recreated in all of these films down to the Bridget Jones franchise, yeah. which will come to later. But do you think these films are reacting to it and kind of trying to make it seem more American, more cool and more stylized in a way that then makes it less attractive for international audiences because it, it's kind of leaning into into the Britishness a bit less? Yeah, because it's less unique, right? Like the whole point about Notting Hill for all its faults, and you're right, it's a very white, very posh film, is that it has things, trademarks, that American audiences in particular are going to be like, oh my gosh, that's just darling. And do they are think, lovely. You do know. you think it's a, there's a really great quote from an article? It's like, it seems all mildly perfect. Yeah. It's kind of very, um, no, moderately perfect. All the characters and all the settings of Notting Hill. And do you think the sort of moderate perfection is one of the selling points of this quaint but not realistic Britishness that is being sold in these films? Totally. One of my favourite quotes about that film is from Tom Lamont from The Observer at the time wrote that it was poshos in light crisis which is just the perfect way to describe a Richard Curtis comedy right like nothing truly bad is happening to these people if we're honest wine buddy mm. you haven't slept with her have you that is a cheap question and the answer is of course no comment no comment means yes no it doesn't do you ever masturbate definitely no comment see it means yes oh my god so uh tell me um Anna what do you do I'm an actress. Oh, splendid. What do you do? I'm actually in the stock market myself, so uh, not really similar fields. <laughs> Though um, um, I have done the old bit of amateur stuff. Um, uh, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, farce, all that, you know. Careful there, Vicar. <laughs> Always imagined it's a pretty tough job, though, acting. I mean, the wages are a scandal, aren't they? They can be. Last film you did, what do you get paid? $15 million. Right. It's a vague element of heartbreak here and there, or something bad happened in the past, but because they're so British and they've got stiff upper lip, they've managed to triumph over it in a kind of very stoic day-to-day. -day. So in Notting Hill's example, you've got Gina McKee as Hugh Grant's character's uh, wheelchair-using sister, and she apparently went into a wheelchair because she slipped and had an accident. And this is used a couple of times as... Gee shucks, isn't life awful sometimes, but we carry on regardless. I'm not particularly sure that's a great way to show disability on screen, but anyway, it's, there's no real peril there, if we're honest. Basically, what they're saying is that we're so British and so stoic that we can get over anything, even being confined to a wheelchair. However, though, it's interesting that actually Anna Scott, so Julia Roberts' character, is the only one who actually has any stakes in a way because, because of her romance with Hugh Grant's character, William, in this film, she has got a massive Hollywood career. There are elements that could seriously affect her career trajectory if she's paparazzi around or taking pictures of when she's on and about with him. So there are stakes in her life that don't actually affect the, the the very mild and very lovely and very quaint and very darling lifestyle of the British characters in this. Yeah, which is perhaps why she feels quite so standoffish. Like she's definitely the one that William is chasing. like And a lot of wrong. I think chasing is a very strong word for William in this film. Well, <laughs> as, as chasing is kind of, you know, amiable Hugh Grant gets. But 
there's def- there's always a power imbalance in romantic comedy, and that's that's the whole point, right? But the power imbalance here is literal in that Anna Scott is a world-beating celebrity, a multi-millionaire, and someone that is presumably recognised wherever she goes. Although the film doesn't really show that because she's able to wander around Notting Hill Market fairly easily, at least in my understanding, a major celebrity. Anyway... Her power is her celebrity and it's also her weakness in that she has trust issues around, understandably, around who's trying to get into bed with her and why. And they play on that an awful lot. But it also, if you look at it through a different filter, makes Anna Scott, the actual person, seem quite horrible to William. If we're taking her at her word with her line later where she says, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. If she is just a girl her treatment of him is pretty shabby throughout the film. And that makes it interesting as well as quite a, quite a strange mix for the for the British rom-com in particular. Why do you say that her treatment of him is uh, awful or wrong? She dismisses him at least four times in kind of quite hurtful ways throughout the film. So who's that rather diffident chap I saw you talking to around the back? No one. Just some guy from the past. I, that's a bit of an awkward situation, really. I don't know what he's doing here. There is like the, there's a scene where he goes to set and he can overhear her basically slagging him off to a cast member. And as she explains later, there's reasons for that. She can't be as honest about their relationship as she'd like to be. But I guess what Curtis did really well in the film is cast this power imbalance as something that's actually literal for this couple, rather than where if, with most rom-coms and most British rom-coms, the power imbalance is seen as something that they own, for example, or they're in a slightly different workplace or they have a different attitude to life. But this is literally, they have completely ulterior lives. It's like an, an alien meeting a human man, basically. I don't think she's necessarily cruel or standoffish. I think it's a, it's a small insight into that imbalanced dynamic between them, but also the vastly different worlds that they inhabit and the persona that Anna needs to create in order to survive in that world and who she needs to be on set and in front of the press is very different from the person that she wants to be or that she is. And I think that is the power that William has is the fact that he allows her to be a real person and he sort of has the patience and the interest to see through the standoffishness, which is very mannered and very much kind of designed to protect her from everyone who's trying to invade and take a piece of her for whatever, for their own interests. And I think the fact, the choice of words that she uses, that I'm just a girl, is actually taking away the quote-unquote Anna Scott brand. She's Mm. not a film star. She's just a woman who just wants to be with this particular man. She obviously at that point does not care about the imbalance in her life. So the fact that he's not part of her world that she has to operate in, because that's the active word. She's not really living in that world. She's operating in it. And her demeanor and the way that she talks and the way that she, even Julia Roberts kind of body language and the way that she uses the word body in the film really changes and relaxes as she gets more comfortable and begins to trust William. And to be fair, I don't think we can ever judge her for being standoffish at the beginning because why the hell would you not? It's a random dude who obviously shows an interest in you. He might be pretending that he doesn't know who she is. That is her world. Everybody wants a piece of her. Everybody, she rightfully assumes that everybody knows who she is and that everybody's going to try to get at something. She is just protecting herself as opposed to being standoffish or cruel or mean. It's just the way her world operates. And it's almost shocking for her to encounter someone who genuinely does not want anything from her aside from to be with her. 
And I guess also, when you put it like that, the, her celebrity gives him an element of deference that wouldn't exist otherwise, right? Like in most rom-coms, the man is assuming that he's chasing after the woman and he deserves to get everything he's going to get. In this one, I mean, Hugh Grant's natural nervousness and foppishness is part of it, but also there's an element of he is stunned by her celebrity, as you would be, and his friends are stunned by it too, and it turns his world upside down. So I guess he's... I keep coming around to his side. He's trying to work out how he feels about the person as well as the position they're in, I guess. Absolutely. And that's kind of what makes it for a very interesting, very charming dynamic. So Notting Hill came out in 1999. Do you think it sort of ended or kickstarted another period in the British rom-com? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about the second period of the British rom-com, which is 2001 to 2006, roughly. 2001 is when Bridget Jones's diary comes out. And you're right, it's a weird pastiche of the Curtis films in a strange way and that Hugh Grant plays a cad who's also kind of strangely foppish and nervous because he's Hugh Grant at the same time. So there's a kind of twist on his formula that he's had in the earlier films. In Butcher Jones's Diary. Yeah. Have you seen that film? He plays an absolute asshole. Yeah, but it's based on playing on the fact that he's supposed to be the British nice guy, right? Like our impression of him is always going to be... Hugh Grant as William yes. Thackeray. Which is an Thacker, interesting, sorry, <laughs> which is a really interesting uh, change in dynamic as well, because yeah. actually Hugh is the person who unites all of the British romantic comedies because he created that persona mm-hmm. of the British leading uh, romantic lead so and defined it so very well that then when he twisted it around and became a very manipulative, selfish, very self-aware and confident character in his character Daniel in Bridget Jones's Diary. It's very quiet here, isn't it? Are we, uh, are we the only guests? Or? We have a wedding this weekend. I believe there are just four of you not involved. Oh, Jesus. Hello there. Hi. Oh, well. Take it you're also heading for the Alconbury's Rockery. Yes, that's right. I brought Natasha. Get a bit of work done, thought I might make it a not entirely wasted weekend. How interesting. What a gripping life you do lead. Yeah, well, I'll, um, I'll see you upstairs in a second. It is a twist on his previous persona, and that kind of twists around the the British rom-com as well for that kind of second period, don't you think? Absolutely. And one of the films in that in that second period is about a boy in 2002. Again, Hugh Grant is playing an arsehole in that, essentially, that learns the errors of his ways. I think it must have been a conscious decision from Hugh Grant to stop being the nice guy, stop being the hopeless bloke who's amiably trying to get the person or the thing that he wants, and to consciously turn into a slightly nastier bloke. But it's interesting that even the nastier blokes he plays um, have an element of redeemability to them, and they, they have think, to, I guess. I don't think Daniel and Maybe not Daniel, but definitely in About a Boy, there's a sense that the No Man is an Island thing turns into, oh, actually, I can look after people and we're all going to feel good in the end anyway. The thing is, mate, my life's really kind of hectic just at the moment, so... Why? I thought you did nothing. Yeah, well, you know, I've got Ned and stuff to look after. Matter of fact, I'm actually on the way to play school just at the moment. What's that noise? That's a lawnmower. So, you know, just just time-wise, it's not... um, it's not for it. Tell you what, just hold, hold the line one sec. Hold it one sec, thanks. But then I thought, why not? Why shouldn't I take the poor little sod out for a meal? I could be Uncle Will, cool Uncle Will, king of the kids. 
what is the Hugh Grant persona that he created? So they're sort of borderline insecure, very floppish, awkward. Do you think that they're actually the ultimate center of every one of these stories? Like, is it actually about the romance or is it about them getting over themselves so they allow themselves to fall in love and have a, a healthy romantic relationship? Increasingly, the more I think about it, I think it's people coming around to him. Andy McDowell in Four Weddings and a Funeral and her character realizing that actually he's the right pick to go for after all of these people have disappointed her. It's Anna Scott realizing that Hugh Grant's character is the right person to go for despite his insecurities and floppiness. And I don't think actually he's, if you look at what he does in the films, he's not that much of an active character until we get to the final race to the airport or race to to win the heart back of the, the woman. There's more of an element of life happens to him and he amiably bumbles through trying to make the best of those things, I think anyway. So actually, it's about the female leads settling. Yeah, in a strange way. <laughs> That's not great. God. <laughs> and also, it's about lovely things happening to a man. To who, rich, lovely who, people. <laughs> who actually doesn't really do yeah. much to earn them, is it? Films might not have aged too well. <laughs> I also think that when you look at films that try to recreate that formula, that love actually, it's a kind of very thin, gruel copy of those films. I, mean, I know lots of people love that film and I understand why. It has the same feel-good atmosphere to it, but it doesn't have the Richard Curtis Hugh Grant magic. And this is Natalie. She's new, like you. Hello, Natalie. Hello, David. I mean, sir. Shit, I can't believe I've just said that. <laughs> and I've gone and said shit. Twice. <laughs> I'm so sorry, sir. It's fine, it's fine. You could have said fuck and then we'd have been in real trouble. Thank you, sir. I did have an awful premonition I was going to fuck up on my first day. Oh, piss it. <laughs> Whereas Love Actually, it's lots of people trying to play Hugh Grant in a Richard Curtis-style film. So while I see that it's got, quote-unquote, and I hate myself, all the feels, it definitely has an element of failure to it as well because people aren't as good as Hugh Grant at doing Richard Curtis-style dialogue. Absolutely. And also, well, Love Actually, the kind of the key romantic moment in it is actually intensely creepy yeah. and inappropriate. <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously talking about the moment where Andrew Lincoln shows up at Kira Nicey's house and she's just recently married. Oh. Hi. Who is it? It's Carol Singers. Well, give him a quid and tell him to bugger off. And he shows her, plays her a song and shows her a bunch of cards where he tells her how much he loves her in front of her house. It's kind of the say anything moment, right? Yes, but very creepy and very inappropriate because her husband is also his best friend. But, you know, Hugh Grant would make that work. There would be an element in that, that he would be able to go there and be the guy who is being weirdly creepy and strange. But also underneath it all, there's a well-meaningness. And, and he you can feel that off that actor. I'm not saying Andrew Lincoln doesn't have that, but it's much harder to do in that kind of setup than someone like a master like Hugh Grant manages to make it look. So how are we defining then the British romantic lead that Hugh Grant established? Nervous, but sexy in his nervousness. And how do you think they play off of the American version of the romantic lead? And do you think there's any particular actor who's really embodied that as well as Hugh has for the British version? The typical version would be Matthew McConaughey, right? Like, but what does Matthew McConaughey give you that Hugh Grant doesn't have? I mean, Sexy Chisel Labs, uh, oh, Southern one. Drawl, <laughs> that's another. I think you're running away. Why don't you save your mind games for your next bet, okay? I am not running away. Bullshit. Matthew McConaughey plays stupid, basically, in his rom-coms, right? Like, he plays dumb and sexy and 
he has to go through a, a transmission from that into something that's more evolved. You heard me. Bullshit. Hey, lady, what do you want to do? Take the lady's luggage back to her place. She has alternate transportation. I don't think he plays dumb all Not the dumb. time. No. No, I think it's some of his kind of most popular romantic comedies, like How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Failure to Launch isn't really that popular, but he doesn't play a dumb guy. He plays a guy who just, um, again, lets things happen to him, or is very overtly alpha maleish and very broish. But I think the other element to it as well is that actually he doesn't really have an internal conflict to get over in the same way that the Hugh Grant romantic lead has. It's more external issues mm. that arise. And he and, you know, his intended kind of romantic partner would need to surpass or, or get over, be that, you know, a magazine article that Kate Hudson is writing about him or him moving out of his parents' house and failing to launch. You said that Americans are action orientated and us Brits are more insular. I did not say that. You said that. <laughs> I think that might be it, though. I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> uh, I wanted to brush on lightly the kooky best friend because this is a very British rom com trope. In this film, it's Spike, played by Risa Farns, who's William's Welsh flatmate, and a kind of career making turn from Risa Farns in it, who's great. He's really he is good. amazing. He plays, uh, what, do, what does he get called? The smelliest man in the world? Yeah. <laughs> How did I look? Not bad. Not at all bad. Well-chosen briefs, I'd say. Chicks love grey. Nice, firm buttocks. Again, he's a very, very British eccentric. And I think all of the side characters in this film have kooky elements to them. There's a couple of dinner party scenes where people like Hugh Bonneville and Gina McKee are sat there playing these characters who all have their kooks and quirks that are very British and very adorable. And again, that to me, that's a marketing strategy from Curtis's point of view. It's just saying that all Britishness is weird and strange and kind of lovable and cute when you get down to it. And let's capitalise on that. Yeah, and exactly. But that's a very 1990s view of Britishness. Britishness that's would a Blairite this, view of would Britishness. Would you say the same thing exists in the in the noughties version of the British rom-com? No, I think that's where they go a bit weird and a bit dark. Like something like Wimbledon with Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany is not a natural romantic lead, despite being being a great actor and there is an element of sinisterness to him I think which comes across in Wimbledon and doesn't really work it also doesn't have the kind of sharp script that Notting Hill does you're exceeding my expectations mine too do it with a sly serve I'll treat you to fish and chips Ooh, pressure's on lovely toss uh. fish and chips it is then but I think without getting too deep the meaning of Britishness had started to turn at that point. So we were getting more cynical and slightly less open as a nation. And the whole idea of cool Britannia, etc. and Blairism had died. So we're now into this era where we're not really sure who we are anymore. But I guess we can still be romantic and sexy on top of that. And if you come at it like that, you're going to show yourself to be slightly creepy and weird. Whereas if you have your confidence stocked in your nervousness and sexiness, like Hugh Grant does, you're going to show off this vision of Britain that is very much bumbling and well-meaning, but ultimately wanting the world to get on as a decent place, which I don't really feel like we have anymore. And there really isn't a, a very identifiable or iconic leading man in the second period of the British rom-com as you're defining it. I'd say, if anything, it was defined by Bridget Jones, so by Renee Zellweger, yeah. playing a British woman. And 
that, you know, kind of twists around the British romantic comedy in the way that you described, because it's all about her basically accepting herself. So going through that same journey of accepting her realness and her insecurities as a woman and kind of going after what she wants as opposed to letting people come to her and stuff happen to her. That's actually kind of the twist, the turning point in the film where she dumps Daniel Cleaver, played by Hugh Grant, and kind of goes on to shift her life around or even just accept the parts of her life that are just part of herself, like smoking or eating or having drinks with her friends, which um, at the beginning is something that she wants to control and, and take out of her life. There's an amazing article on The Guardian by Benjamin Lee from a few years back talking about why Brit rom-coms aren't really sustainable anymore and the audiences have lost their appetite for them. There's various reasons for that, but one of the reasons is that Hugh Grant has left a massive hole in the industry by not playing these roles anymore. Who do you think kind of takes fills his shoes? I think that's the issue. There is no leading man and yeah. there is no romantic leading lady either. So mm. there is no one taking up the mantle in such a strong and easily identifiable way in, in, as Hugh. I think Simon Pegg has tried it mm -hmm. and I think he's very charming in some of the romantic comedies that he's done, like Run, Fuck, Boy, Run. You were right, you know, about... Me entering the marathon, it, you know, it was because I was sort of trying to win you back kind of thing. And I'd always kind of hope that maybe we'd, you know, get back together in that. But, you know, when I saw you with Wit... Dennis. And I, and I, know, I know it's the height of hypocrisy. And I know, I know doing this isn't going to change anything or, or make anything better, but... Um, I just, I'd settle for your respect. You know, I'd settle for you smiling when you thought about the time that we had together and not thinking it was a waste of time. And also Donald Gleeson is very charming, very funny, also in About Time, which is also Richard Curtis movie. Yeah. However, that is intensely creepy in a very different way. It really is. Uh, because <laughs> it's basically about a man trying to rewrite a woman's life. It's got the Groundhog Day thing, right? Yeah, yeah. but creepier, <laughs> creepier version of Groundhog Day. <laughs> Actually, I can't think of anyone else and none of them, they both have careers that are so varied. You can't really tie them down to this one particular genre. If anything, Simon Peck is obviously very associated with big franchises like Star Trek and has collaborated a lot with Edgar Wright, making huge and hilarious comedies um, that also play around with genres. Donald Gleeson as well is obviously in Star Wars and in a lot of really interesting sci-fi films. You don't tie them in as just romantic leads. So we're kind of waiting for the next romantic lead. And I don't think there's a single kind of actress that you would identify as being the romantic comedy lead in Britain at the moment. If Mr. Thacker realized he'd been uh, a daft prick... <laughs> got down on his knees and begged you to reconsider whether you would in fact then reconsider. Yes, I believe I would. That's very good news. Um, the readers of Horse and Hound will be absolutely delighted. <laughs> I think over the last half an hour or so, I've convinced myself that Hugh Grant might be my favourite actor of all time, Anna. I mean, there's a Hugh Nassance going on. I mean, it was going on last year. You're late <laughs> as usual. But Hugh's next. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
That's it for this episode. Big XOXOXO from us for listening. Please share the love by rating and reviewing The Bigger Picture on Apple Podcasts. You'll find us on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna is... I'm at Anna B. Demented. The Bigger Picture, presented by the British Film Institute, is a product of our long-term love affair with producer Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks when we'll be celebrating the 40th anniversary of Alien. In the meantime, your last line this episode comes from Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York. Whoopsie-daisy! That is the most random last line ever for this episode. But Hugh Grant says whoopsie-daisy a lot in Notting Hill. Okay, I take it back. It's quite low-key. It's very meta. It might make sense. It's very meta. (laughs) 